God's grace. God's grace. It's why we're here. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's grace. It's why we named our church Grace Bible Church. And it is really a theme, the major theme of the book of Ephesians. A new a book that we'll be studying, a book that I'll be preaching through, Lord willing, over the next many months. God's grace. What is God's grace? How does it apply to us individually and as a church? And how do we respond to it? How do we live according to God's grace? Those are many of the key themes we'll be looking at in the book of Ephesians. I invite you to open your Bible to Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. It is a wonderful book. It is a lofty book. It has lots of theology and lots of practical application. In fact, he ties it together perfectly. The first part being the theology of who we are, and the second part being how we live that out, how we respond to God's grace. So I just want to read to you the introduction, the salutation that he gives, because that's what we'll be looking at today. But I think in this introduction, he he really covers the main issues that he'll be writing in the letter. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we do ask that you would remind us of your grace and your peace this morning, that we would see the overall theme of this letter, the reason why it's so relevant for us today. Help us to know this book of the Bible. Help us to read it regularly. Read it in our homes. Read it to our families, our children. And I pray, Lord, that you would implant these truths upon our heart so we might truly live them out. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. I love the book of Ephesians. It is probably Paul's most theological book. There's a lot of theology in Paul's letters. Most people think Romans is the most theological book, and it, it, it truly is. But in Ephesians, Paul writes in these long sentences to describe God's grace in the first few chapters. You don't see it in English, but for example, a chapter 1, a sentence starts in verse 3. And it doesn't end until verse 14. That's the end of Paul's sentence. So 3 through 14 is one Greek sentence where Paul's talking about what God has done for us. That's high theology. Most of us couldn't write that long of a sentence in English as we're talking about what God has done for us. It's an important book for us, even to me personally. It's one of my favorites of the New Testament. I love Romans. I love Luke. I love them all. We're always getting asked, what's your favorite book of the Bible? It's hard for me to pick, but I think Ephesians is up there in the top two for the New Testament. It was probably one of the earliest references to God's sovereignty that I ever saw when somebody explained predestination and election. And I said, that's not in the Bible, in my own heart and mind. And then I discovered the book of Ephesians. And so it is a wonderful book. I think it'll be wonderful for our church. It's one that will impress upon our minds what God has done for us and and how He saved us and what Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing. And it will show us how to live 
as Christians. Something we always need to be reminded of. Something we need to be corrected on and admonished. All of these things are tied up in these six chapters. They're really a, a short book of the Bible, as many New Testament letters are. But it's a wonderful, a great, a powerful book. The letter to the Ephesians. It's been called the greatest of Paul's writings by some. Others say it's the maturest of Paul's writings. Even though it wasn't the last thing he wrote, it's probably his maturest in theological output. One person has said it's the crown of all his epistles. And another writer said it's the most relevant for our time. All the Bible's relevant. But when it comes to the epistles to the churches, that's when it's very easy for us to see the relevance. We don't have to go far to see the application because he just speaks directly to us and to our hearts. If you're studying 1 Samuel, for example, you've got to do a bit of work to see how that applies to you. But not so in the epistles and even in Ephesians. He speaks directly to the church, directly to believers. So it's easy for us to see that he wants us to believe and do something. One Bible commentator said the contents of this letter are simple enough and so foundational that the letter should be read and studied by every new believer. Yet, the theological concepts are so profound that the most mature Christian never seems to master its depth. If you can master verses 3 through 14, you have done a great thing. Many theologians have studied that passage, and we will get into it, and we will faithfully study it, and I will faithfully, Lord willing, proclaim it. But there is so much depth, so much depth in this book. The reformer John Calvin loved Ephesians. It was his favorite book. The reformer, the theologian of the Reformation, John Calvin loved Ephesians, his favorite book. He spent 48 sermons preaching on it. It made a huge impact especially on the refugees that were in Geneva during that time as they were being persecuted all around Europe. They would go to Calvin's seminary, Calvin's church, and they would hear expository preaching for the first time. Because you didn't find that in the Catholic church. You found a 15, 20-minute homily. Calvin's preaching for an hour on the book of Ephesians at that time. One of those men was John Knox, the Scottish reformer. He was there as a refugee, and he was moved by this letter to the Ephesians and other teachings that Calvin taught. And he took that back to Scotland. And he said, give me Scotland for God, for Christ, or I'll die. He prayed that prayer to God. And he spread the Reformation in Scotland. And as he was dying, as he was dying on his deathbed, you know what he wanted read to him by his wife? Not just the letter to the Ephesians, of course, but he wanted to hear Calvin's sermons once again on the book of Ephesians. And he wanted her to sit there because they had been published at that point in print. And he wanted her to sit there and read out Calvin's exposition on the letter to the Ephesians. It's a mighty book. Many people have been converted just by reading the book of Ephesians. Why? Because it has so much for us. It, it really says itself that it is describing the riches, the riches that God has given us. Just as a way of introduction, I want you to look at a few verses that talk about these riches. Before we even get into the body of the sermon, I want you to see the riches that are mentioned in this book. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. 
And that's true wealth right there. That's not financial wealth today, but that's the wealth that God has given us eternally. The riches. What's, what's so rich about it? Redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. And it's all according to his grace. Look at verse 18, chapter 118. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Paul's praying that they and us would read this letter and study it and know the riches that God has given us in Christ. Because we don't always know them all and we don't always remember them all. And we have to be taught and reminded about the riches God has given us. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 4. 2-4. But God being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. His great love, He was rich in mercy. What did He do? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Riches. You can't measure those kinds of riches. You can't buy those things. Verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The riches of his grace again. In the ages to come. In the rest of this age and in the next age, he's going to show out his riches. God will show riches in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, now I'm speaking personally here, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. What's Paul doing? What's his ministry? What's this letter about? He's proclaiming those riches. They're unfathomable. You can't even fathom them all. You can't completely understand how rich salvation is, how rich grace is. We can have some understanding of it. We're supposed to. He's going to teach us that in this letter. But he says at some point, you just you cannot understand how great they are. Verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. That he, this is uh, God, would grant you according to the riches of his glory. So we have his grace, which is rich. We have his mercy, which is, which is rich. And now the riches of God's glory that He would grant to us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. This is a book full of riches. And we could do the same thing for God's glory. If we just trace that out, I won't go through the nine verses on God's glory, but just in the first few chapters. God's glory, God's glory, God's glory. So what's this book about? I'll give you a, a few throughout today's sermon, a few purposes, themes of the book. But one of them is simply God's glory and the riches that He gives us. God's glory and the riches that He gives us. So today's sermon, though, is going to open some of that up. We want to look at just His first couple of verses here, His salutation, His greeting. And I want you to understand the message of Ephesians. Why did Paul write it? And how we should think about it today. A lot of people say the Bible is not relevant today. Or, or even Christians will say, well, it's kind of relevant, but the, the preacher's got to make it extremely relevant. Show some movie clips, put on some skits. No, it's relevant, and we'll see that today. So why he wrote it and how we should think about it. 
By the way, I encourage you to read this letter. It should take you about 20 minutes. If you're a slow reader, maybe 30 minutes. Read it every day. You have 20 minutes of Bible reading. You can read Ephesians. Read it once a week at least as we're preaching, as I'm preaching through it. Read through it. You'll see the connections. It'll tie together. You'll, you'll see where I'm going. You can pray for me as I preach those messages. You can pray for yourself, your family. Read the book of Ephesians. It's easy to read in one sitting. So as we're looking at this letter, first of all, the message of Ephesians is, number one, an authoritative message. It's authoritative. It's a message that has God's authority in it. All the Bible's authoritative. Every word of God is authoritative. But, but some will reject certain parts of God's word. Just outright reject it. Some say Paul didn't write this letter. Even though the book starts with his name. They say that it was faked. The liberals especially will say that this is not a letter from Paul. Therefore, since it's not a letter from an apostle, we don't have to treat it the same as we do his other writings. No, every word of God is authoritative. And this book itself is authoritative. Paul states that from the very beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's powerful language. That's stating clearly how authoritative this letter is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is Paul, also known as Saul in Acts. Jesus didn't really give him a new name. He just started calling him Paul. And that's where we see the rest of his name mentioned in Scripture. He was sent out by the Holy Spirit in Acts 13 to plant churches. And he went throughout Asia Minor, and then he went over to Greece, and eventually he made it to Rome. And he's preaching the gospel, and he's planting churches, and he's going back through those churches and installing elders and teaching them some more and writing letters back to them. This is Paul, the apostle. Eventually he's arrested in Jerusalem. He's taken to Rome. At the end of the book of Acts, he's sitting there in Rome under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, and he'll spend two years there. Two years under house arrest, but people are coming and they're bringing letters to him and he's writing letters. This book here is one of the letters Paul wrote when he's chained to a guard under house arrest for two years in Rome. He's in the capital of the world at that time. He's waiting to see the emperor who will, who will rule if Paul's going to die or live. Because remember, Paul's a Roman citizen. And he appealed to the emperor and he writes letters to four churches. Four churches. He writes to the Colossians. He writes a personal letter, not really to a church, but a personal letter to Philemon. Probably associated, though, Philemon was with a church, of course. So he wrote Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. Four prison epistles. And he mentions being chained, and he mentions being a prisoner for the Lord in those. So we know he wrote them around the same time. But he says, Paul, an apostle. You see that word apostle? We, we go right through it these days, but it means appointed messenger. Appointed messenger by whom? By, by Christ. He has given the authority of the Lord himself. Christ gave Paul authority. So when he writes this, he's saying, I have been given authority by Christ. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. To be an apostle was not something that you just said you were an apostle. It's not something you earned. 
To be an apostle was not something somebody else could give you. Today we have apostles, supposedly, in different denominations. But the Bible says you have to meet three special qualifications. There's three qualifications to be an apostle. Number one, a witness to the resurrected Christ. You had to witness the resurrected Christ in the flesh. And since he's in heaven now, no one can witness him in the flesh on earth. You had to witness the resurrected Christ. Secondly, you had to be appointed by Christ himself. Paul talks about this in Corinthians because there's lots of false apostles going around teaching wrong things, teaching bad theology, a false gospel. And Paul says, you have to be appointed by Christ himself. And we'll see that happen to Paul. And thirdly, you have to confirm the mission that Christ gave you and the message by miraculous signs. Miraculous signs. People took handkerchiefs that had touched Paul and they put them on somebody who was sick and dying and that person got healed. That was a miraculous sign. His message was confirmed. All three of these things have to be in place for there to be an apostle, which is why we don't have apostles today. They don't qualify. They don't meet these things. But think of the original 12. Then, of course, Judas was a false apostle, a false witness to Christ. Then he was replaced. And then Paul, and some say maybe James and Jude, were as well apostles. People who had seen Christ, they'd been appointed by Christ, and they confirmed their message and their mission by miraculous signs. So Paul was set aside as an apostle. He was given a mission. He was given a purpose by, it says, Christ Jesus. Now we used to say Jesus Christ. Paul will say Jesus Christ by the time he gets down to the end of verse 2. Why does he say Christ, then Jesus? Well, Christ first is a title. It means Messiah. And he's saying that Messiah, the one that God promised to send, the one that came and died on the cross for sinners so that we could have forgiveness of sin, that Messiah whose personal name was Jesus. Christ the Messiah, Jesus was his personal name. Christ was his title. It becomes his name. We think of it as his last name, but it becomes his name because we use it so often. And the Bible uses it so often. But he said, I'm an apostle of that Messiah. Of that Messiah. Let's look at Paul's life, how that came about. Galatians 1.1, Paul, he reminds them, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men. This is Paul in Galatians 1.1, because the Galatian church has a lot of problems, and he wants to make sure they know who he is. Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's not sent by anyone else. He's sent by God. He's sent by God. Let's go to Acts 26, and we'll see that. Go back to the book of Acts, another book written by Luke. And he tells the history of the church. And in Acts 26, Paul has been arrested and he has given his testimony before the governor, Felix, the Roman governor. And the governor is in Caesarea where Paul is waiting. He's waiting to go to Rome. Acts 26, verse 9. It's really amazing that you can think of Paul as an apostle of Christ by the will of God. When you see his story, when you remember what Paul did, 
Acts 26, starting in verse 9. He begins to tell Agrippa, who's a, a Jewish king there with the governor. And he begins to tell Agrippa his story, his testimony. And verse 9, So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was going out and catching Christians, bringing them back for trial, and loving the fact that they were being punished, they were being persecuted, they were being killed. Verse 10, This is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, so the the chief priests in Jerusalem gave Paul authority. He was almost their apostle in a sense. They gave him authority to go lock up Christians, put them in jail, bring them back for trial. But also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. He didn't just drop them off and leave. He stayed on and he voted against them. I mean, he, he cheered with the crowd. He gave as a Pharisee his affirmation vote that they should be killed. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues. So he didn't just catch them around Jerusalem and Judea. He went out and caught them anywhere that they ran to. He was a bounty hunter in many regards, looking for Christians, Jewish Christians. I tried to force them to blaspheme. He tried to persuade them under torture to reject the name of the Lord, to blaspheme against God. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. He wasn't just doing his job. He loved it. And he was so enraged at them. He hated that. He thought he was being zealous for the Lord, so he was going to chase them down, punish them, kill them. Maybe if they made it back, he would put them on trial for the Sanhedrin. He was enraged. How could God take a man like this and make him an apostle? What did Paul do to earn such a right to be an apostle? Well, look at verse 12. While I was so enraged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest, So again, he's given authority. They've sent him on a mission. At midday on the road, O king, so he's talking to King Agrippa here, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So. Jesus says, you're persecuting me as you persecute the church, my body. And not only that, but but you're like a donkey who's kicking back against the spikes or an ox that's kicking back against the spikes, the goads, actually hurting yourself. How could that be? Well, he goes on. Paul says, or Saul, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. There's Paul's free will in action, right? Free will? Not at all. Paul didn't ask for this to happen. He didn't earn it. He's just going along persecuting Christians. He gets blinded and knocked down by the light. And then Jesus says, get up and stand on your feet. And he's fearful. Paul is fearful. He's trembling. For this purpose, Jesus said, I appear to you. What did Jesus come and appear to him for? to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, 
So he sees Christ in the flesh here, and he's appointed by Christ, but also to the things which I will appear to you. There's going to be multiple appearances of Jesus to Paul. We don't know what was said at those. They're not revealed. Later we find out that Paul spent three years in the desert. It's assumed that's when Christ met with him. He's being trained by the Lord. And verse 17, rescuing you from Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Jesus is going to rescue Paul from the Jews. Paul is a Jew. He's working for the Jews. He's loving it. And now Jesus surprises him, says, I'm going to rescue you from Jews and Gentiles. Verse 18, here's the mission. To open their eyes. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. What a rich explanation the Lord gives of the gospel. Open their eyes, Paul. You're going to open their eyes. And you're going to show them that they need to come to me and have faith, Jesus says. And they're going to be in darkness, but you're going to show them the light. You're going to show them that they're in bondage to Satan and his dominion. But you're going to tell them about forgiveness of sins. And they're going to receive it. Many will be saved through that message, in other words. That's amazing. Paul had a mission from Christ. God's grace came through Christ to visit Paul, converted him, regenerated him, saved him. Paul wasn't looking for that. He went from an unbeliever who hated Christianity to an apostle in an instant. You can only receive that from the Lord. And I'm thankful that he did. We should be grateful. We have so many letters of Paul in the New Testament now. So he's an apostle. He's appointed by God. He's an apostle of Christ. Appointed by the Father. Appointed by the Son. This should put a death knell in this silly argument that's out there that Jesus is opposite from Paul. Have you heard of the Jesus versus Paul? argument the debate well jesus never spoke of homosexuality that's just paul jesus never talked about the church he talked about the kingdom but paul just talks about the church it seems like all the time jesus and paul in other words have two different messages it's popular with liberals but but even many evangelical christians they want you to show them in the red letters show me in the red letters don't just show me in Ephesians or Romans. And you need to tell them it's all God's word. And Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's been given authority by Christ. That kills that argument. The words of Jesus are the words that Paul spoke. They're exactly what Paul needed to say. And they're authoritative just like any other part of the word of God. All that Paul's about to say in the letter are the words of God. Because all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Paul says that later in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He didn't say just the red letters. He didn't say just the Gospels. He said all Scripture. Not just your favorite verse and your favorite book, but everything. Every word is profitable and needs to be used for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's authoritative. 
brothers, sisters in Christ, because it's authoritative, we need to believe it and we need to obey it. That's what it means when God's word is authoritative. Believe what it says to be true and obey it. That's all that's commanded of us. Sounds simple, right? Believe it and obey it. Sometimes we think we are believing and obeying and we're actually not. Sometimes we know what it says and we know what we're supposed to do and we still don't. We have to, though. It's God's word. It's authoritative. He's, a, he's an apostle of Christ sent for our benefit. This letter will be read throughout the ages. Do what it says. Do what it says. If it says that we're supposed to treat spiritual gifts a certain way in the church, that a church is supposed to be set up a certain way as it does in chapter 4, then we ought to obey that. If it teaches what we are to believe on election, no matter what we've grown up thinking, no matter what other churches think, no matter what our favorite preacher thinks, if election and predestination are in the Bible, we have to believe it. Because that's authoritative. If it teaches us to believe certain truths about salvation, as it does in chapter 2, we ought to obey it. If it teaches us how the home is supposed to be run, as it does at the end of chapter 5 and in chapter 6, we ought to obey it. You know, as a biblical counselor, I'm part of a, a group of graduates from the Master's College and Seminary, and they had a poll online that said, which books of the Bible do you use most often in counseling? And people would list their top three or four. And you notice that Ephesians came up more times than any other book in the Bible. Why? Because he has so much to say about how we should live, how we should treat others, how the home's supposed to work, how the church is supposed to work according to God, that it's the most commonly used counseling book. It has a lot to say about what we should believe and what we should do as believers in Christ. Well, that's the first point, authoritative. Secondly, it's an essential message. It's essential. Now, again, you might think all books of the Bible are essential. They wouldn't be there. True. But God inspired Paul to write this letter and send it to Ephesus and for it to be recorded and copied throughout the years so that we could have it today in our Bible. It was given for a specific pur purpose. In other words, God thought it was essential for the Ephesian church. And because it's in our Bibles, it's essential for us as well. But it brings out truths that are essential for us to know as Christians. It's essential. We cannot rip it out of our Bibles. God inspired it. He wants it to be there. He's told us that every word is inspired by him. And Paul thought he needed to write this letter to Ephesus because he had concerns. He wanted to build them up and he wanted to protect them from some of the issues that were coming about in Christian churches at that time. Some of the same issues that are still in the world today. So he says at the end of verse 1, the second part there, to the saints who are at Ephesus. To the saints. Not, not the little saint statues or the saints that the Roman Catholic Church calls saints. Who are the saints? All believers in Christ. It's another way of saying believers, but it focuses on the holiness that God has called us to. The saints mean holy ones. Hagios in Greek. Sanctus, it gets translated into Latin. That's where we get sanctified. 
and eventually saints. A person, here's the definition of hagios in Greek, a person dedicated or consecrated to the service of God. Dedicated, consecrated. He's writing to the believers there, the Christians, who have dedicated their lives to Christ, which should describe all Christians. He's talking to all Christians in Ephesus, all Christians in that church, all Christians in the true church today. It describes a Christian. It reminds us who we are. He starts off the letter reminding them who they are. He's not calling them to be holy here yet. He will get to that later. He's just saying, you're saints. You're saints. You're holy. You're set apart for God. You're set apart for God. But notice where he says they are. Not in heaven. He didn't say to the saints who are in heaven one day. But Paul's saying that they're here, they're on earth, they're in this world, they're in Ephesus. To the saints, to the holy ones in a pagan evil city, Ephesus. It speaks to us. We're holy ones in a pagan evil world today. We need to know a little bit, a little bit about Ephesus. We need to know what's going on there. Because it was a seething pot of sin, and paganism, and worldliness. And anytime you live in that environment as Christians, it's going to start to affect you if you let it. It's going to start to come into your life. It's going to start to come into the church. So why does he include at Ephesus? Well, it's not so the person can take the letter there. They already know where they're going when he handed it to them. It's to remind them, you're a holy one and you're living in Ephesus. Ephesus was a a large city in the Roman Empire, originally a Greek city on Asia Minor, where the river Caister flowed into the Aegean Sea. And it was one of the greatest cities in the Roman Empire. One of the greatest in size and importance. It had 250,000 people. That's the third largest city at the time. Rome had about a million. Alexandria in Egypt would be under that. And then thirdly, Ephesus. So this is a large city that this church is planted in. Now the letters to Christians, it's not to all the people of Ephesus. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, the saints. But they live in Ephesus, a political center for that province. In fact, it was so important at that time that if you left Ephesus and started walking to wherever you wanted to go, down the roads of Asia Minor, let's say, and you're going to end up in Jerusalem, as long as you're in that province of Asia Minor, all the mileage markers are pointing back to Ephesus. It's like when you get on the interstate. I forgot which way it goes, but at some point you start at zero and then the mile markers start, the exit numbers. It was like that from Ephesus. It was so important that they found inscriptions written on it that tell you how far you've traveled from Ephesus and they call it the metropolis of Asia. Was that important? And to the people living at that time, and for hundreds of years, the glory of Ephesus was its devotion to its pagan goddess, Artemis, or Diana for the Romans, same goddess, Artemis for the Greeks. They had built a huge temple, the largest building of that day. It had been built two or three times. It would burn down. Somebody would destroy it. They would build it up better, bigger, grander. They loved Artemis. They loved this temple. It was huge. It had been built 380 years before Paul writes this letter. 
It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. So if you've seen or been to the Parthenon in Athens, this building was four times larger. It had a hundred columns around the outside that were 60 feet high. One Greek historian declared that the size of the temple surpassed all known buildings. If you went inside the temple into the inner shrine, you saw an image of Artemis. And it was reported that image had fallen out of the sky. It's in the Bible that had fallen out of the sky, they believe. A meteorite, in other words. And they had chiseled it down to make a statue and covered it in gold. It had multiple breasts all over it. It was like a fertility goddess. And if you went to Artemis as a pagan, no matter where you lived, because they worshipped all the gods. It wasn't like you had your god and everybody else had their god. If you are a pagan, you had your personal household god and maybe the emperor as your god. But if you went to Ephesus, you're going to go to the temple as a pagan and you're going to buy a statue and take it home and put it in your house because it would bless you, they thought. Lots of children, fertility, but lots of produce from your farms, wealth from your business. They made lots of money from selling these little statues to Artemis. Also, it was a place of magic. There were supposedly some inscriptions written on the statue that were magical. And so they would sell these magic books in Ephesus and teach people how to do magic. It was preeminently the city of astrology, sorcery, incantations, amulets, exorcisms, and every form of magical item. So it's a pagan city. It's evil. It's sinful. They are selling these statues and putting them in their yards like people put little saint statues out these days. You can get a magic book and become a magician and, and, and go into business and cast spells for people, according to the devil. Let's go back to Acts, though, and see what happens when the church starts. Acts 19. What's going to happen when the gospel goes into this pagan community? How did this church get started, in other words? Because when he writes to them, they know they're in Ephesus. Why is he telling them that? To remind them that they're in this evil city, but they're still holy ones. They're living in this world, but they're not of this world. Acts 19, verse 1. So it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. No one knows how the disciples ended up in Ephesus. They probably heard Paul preach somewhere else and went back to Ephesus. Or they'd heard of the gospel from some of these other cities that Paul had visited. But when he shows up, there's already disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. There's a lot of debate about what's going on here. I think they're not Christians yet. They heard a little bit, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. They haven't really even been baptized. They don't even know that you should believe in Jesus. So he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So what kind of disciples are they? They're disciples of John, it seems like. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. So he's pointing to Jesus. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus and believe in him. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's why I think they weren't saved because they didn't really know they had to believe in Jesus. They were John's disciples, maybe Jews, that wanted to follow God, wanted to believe in the coming Messiah. 
They didn't know who he was. They didn't know the message of the gospel. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And as a special sign, doesn't happen every day, of course. Doesn't happen at all today, but it did back then in Acts. They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12 men. That's it. 12 people, followers of John the Baptist, and now the true believers in Christ. That's the church. That's the start of the church. Then Paul goes on to enter into the synagogue. He continues speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. So more believers probably from that. And when, when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, the Christian way, before the people, he withdrew from them, took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Brand new church plant. Paul's there. He stays there for two years and rents out or is given a place to teach. A seminary, a Bible school of sorts. And for two years, he teaches them theology. He teaches them how to live for Christ. All the truth that he writes about in his letters, he would have been teaching them. Training up men to go out and plant churches. Getting families ready to do that. Now skip down to verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So Jesus became so popular there that spirits were being cast out. Demons were being cast out by Paul. And it was so popular that seven Jewish brothers, the sons of Sceva, started a business casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they come to cast out a demon in the house. The demon says, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but I don't know you. In other words, you're not saved. You're not of Christ. And the demon beats them up, takes off their clothes. They run out naked. It's a hilarious event. The whole city hears about it. And everyone's fearful because if the demons know Jesus' name, he must be powerful. And Paul, his apostle. So the word is going out. Verse 18. Uh, Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. So they're giving up this paganism. They're not trying to mix the two. They're not bringing in their paganism and setting up a false religion. They're getting rid of it. Look at this. Many of those who practice magic brought their books together. They began burning them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. It's a lot of money. A lot of money today and in that time. Years and years of wages for one person. They just threw it all in a pile and burned them because they came to Christ and got rid of that. No more magic. No more spell books. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these things were finished, Paul proposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. So he wants to go to Jerusalem. He wants to go back and be there for Passover. He wants to report what's happened in his church planning. Skip over to chapter 20. Verse 17. So if you read the rest of 19, you can do that later. There's a big fuss in Ephesus because Christianity is making such an impact that it's affecting the trade. It's affecting the business. You can't sell statues to Artemis if Christ is being named and people are throwing the statues away. So the tradesmen come out, led by one man. They throw a big fit. 
Eventually, the, the ruler of the city puts it down and says, go home. Now look, Paul's coming back through later. Verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called him the elders of the church. So he doesn't go back to Ephesus, but he goes close. Come see me, elders. I'm coming back through. And they had come to him and he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you that was profitable, anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly from house to house. He declared the whole counsel of God, in other words, and he even went into their homes and taught them. In other words, a new church, no excuse for not knowing your Bible. A new church, no excuse for not being taught theology and the truth of Scripture. And he goes on here to tell them and warn them about wolves. Look at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to the elders. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, right in the middle of your church, men will arise, speak perverse things, draw away the disciples after them. Be on the alert, therefore, remembering night and day for a period of three years. So he was there for three years. I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He loves this church. He helped this church get started. He taught this church for three years. Don't turn away, he says, because people are going to rise up in the church. All that paganism, mysticism, magic stuff is going to start to come into the church. It's going to start to mix with Christianity. Be careful. I think that's why he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. You see similar language in, in Colossians. Colossians 2.4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You know what they were being deceived in Colossae with? The philosophy of men. Men could reason and come up with better things than the Bible. And that was coming into the church. And also coming into the church was these elementary principles. These magical properties and principles, mystical things that you could add to Christianity and also worship of angels. If you read Colossians chapter 2, it goes on to talk about worship of angels, talks about legalism, adding this Sabbath day and that festival day from the Jews. These are the same problems in Ephesus. And Paul's writing this sort of as a, a preemptive salvo to make sure they're firm in the faith. He doesn't want them to be affected like the Colossian church was. Mysticism, paganism comes into the church today. We, we live in a similar society. Yeah, there's a lot of Christian churches around, but how much mysticism, paganism, and false teaching is in our community today? I mean, we could be Ephesus times four. Just because it has the name of Christianity doesn't mean it's Christianity. Gay Christianity today is a new movement. Celebrate both being gay and having a Christian lifestyle. You can mix those together. Prosperity movement. Non-lordship movement. That you can be a Christian. You don't have to obey Christ. Live like the world and just call yourself a Christian. Non-lordship. And here's a big one. Mysticism today in the church. Today. Mysticism today in the church. Jesus calling. 
That's mysticism. Jesus is speaking to a woman and she scribbles it down as he talks and then she makes millions. There's a whole line of products. It's the number one selling book in any Christian section of Barnes and Noble or online. Jesus calling. Another popular one now, the Enneagram. The Enneagram. You get this pentagram-like wheel, figure out your number, and Christians are saying this helps you in your sanctification. This helps you know the pathway to better understanding of Christianity and Christ. There's even an Enneagram gospel conference that this guy puts on in churches right now. There's some happening pretty soon in South Carolina, I think. And he says in his video, the Enneagram will help you make a pathway to Christ in the gospel. It's mysticism. It, it, it was originally, it comes from magic and mysticism, and it comes through Roman Catholicism, and now it's getting eaten up by Protestants. Well, he goes on, they're not only holy ones, but they're also believers in Christ Jesus. Believers in Christ Jesus. Holy ones in Ephesus, yes. And I know your translation says faithful, but it should say believers. Every commentary agrees, but every translation says faithful. Faithful is the idea of trusting, trustworthy. Yeah, they're trusting in Christ, but he's not saying you're trustworthy. He's saying those who are believers in Christ. So you got holy ones in Ephesus and believers in Christ. Same group, right? Same group. Holy ones are believers. Holy ones are believers. But where are they at now? They're not in Ephesus. They're in Christ Jesus. In other words, He's speaking of the union they have with Christ. As a believer, you have a union with Christ. It can't be divided. No one can separate it. It's where the Holy Spirit puts you when you're saved. You're in Ephesus, but you're also in Christ. You're in an evil pagan world, but you're not of the world. You're of Christ. You're with Christ. You're in Christ. Don't forget that, he's saying. Don't forget where you are. Before he even starts his letter, he's reminding them. John Calvin said, No man, therefore, is a believer who's not also a saint. On the other hand, no man is a saint who's not also a believer as well. And all that comes together in Christ. You're in Ephesus with all this sin and worldliness, but you're in Christ. And that's all the greater. That's all the better. Well, let's move on to number three. Number three, an encouraging message. It's an encouraging message. Verse two. Paul's going to give them encouragement. He's reminding them that it's authoritative. It's, it's essential. They have to know it because of where they are, and we have to know it because of where we are today. But it's an encouraging message. And he's going to tell them right off the front, and he's going to remind them throughout the letter. Just to give you a division for, for Ephesians, you've probably heard this, chapters 1 through 3 tell you who you are in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, who you are in Christ, your position, who you truly are, not who you should be, but who you are in Christ. Four through six, the second half of the book, how you should live, how you should live, or practice. Some say the whole book is about practicing your position. First half, who you are in Christ. Second half, how to practice that. And he's going to encourage them right from the beginning when he says grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Grace. In other words, you've been justified by God's grace. Remember that, that Christ has taken our sin and given us his righteousness. We have God's grace. It's, it's what saves. And it's mentioned 
many times just throughout the first few chapters. Let's not look at all of them. Just go to the end of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. So he starts the book saying, grace to you. How's he going to end it? Ephesians 6, 24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Starts with grace, God's grace. Ends with grace, God's grace. Not our grace, God's grace. God's grace. We already looked at some verses that talked about the riches of God's grace. God's undeserved favor. That's what grace is, but it's more than that. It's more than that. It's his undeserved favor when we deserved justice and wrath. It's not just his mercy and favor. It's his mercy and favor to those who deserved his wrath. You should have been punished. You should have had the death sentence and you've been given God's grace. That's God's grace. All mankind totally depraved. We're not able to save ourselves, but through God's grace. By grace you have been saved. He'll say in chapter 2, he'll say that a couple times. By grace you have been saved. Not anything you've done. What else does he say there in verse 2? Grace to you and peace. Peace, shalom, well-being. But not just a general well-being. Well-being that comes from being saved in Christ. Being with God. Peace with God. Every blessing that comes to us is because of this peace we have with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not just go home and be happy and be joyful and be peaceful, but do that because you have peace with God. Peace is what we get from God's grace. It's the result of God's grace. Grace is God's saving work. Peace is the result of God's saving work. We need to remember that. And these things don't come from us. They come from, he says, from God our Father. He's our Father. He's all of our Father that are in Christ and also the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our Lord. He's our owner. He's our sovereign. And when Paul gets into telling them what to believe and how to live, you've got to obey because he's our Lord. And we have peace because of him. Grace and peace. You could say that summarizes the gospel. God's grace. We have peace. Grace and peace. You don't get it from Buddha. You don't get it from the Pope. You don't get grace and peace from Mary. You don't get it from praying to the saints. You don't get it from legalism. Grace and peace from who? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not from Muhammad. Not from Confucius. Not from the good old American deistic God. I believe in God. I've always believed in God. I'm an American. Maybe you believe in some God, but the God of Scripture says, repent of your sins and believe in Christ. That's grace and peace. Grace and peace isn't just being born in America. Thankful for our country, but a lot of people think they believe in the God of the Bible and they don't. So God's grace and peace is with us every day as Christians. And he wants to remind them that grace and peace. He's not given us grace and peace. God's already given us grace and peace. Paul is not giving it at all. When you go through trials, when you go through tribulations, God's grace is with you. God's peace is with you. That, that helps me a lot when I go through trials. Hopefully it helps you too. Hopefully you're remembering it. I know it does help you, but remind yourself, no matter what trial I'm in, no matter what tribulation I'm going through, no matter what sin I've committed, God's grace and peace is there for me. It's there for me. That's the summary of the letter. You could say it's about riches and glory. You could say it's about grace and peace. 
You could say it's about who we are in Christ and how we should live it out. All of those things would be true. But I encourage you once again to read the letter, to imprint it upon your eyeballs, as Jonathan Edwards said. And let's get into this, believe it. I think it will change our church. Our church, as I said this morning in the meeting, is already very healthy, but we could excel still more. We're not perfect. Let's, let's get this book into our system. Lord, I thank you for such a wonderful letter to the Ephesians. I pray that we would take it in, digest it, think about it, pray about it, that we would realize we're in modern-day Ephesus. We are in a pagan world. And it's not the danger outside that should concern us as much as the danger inside the church. I pray that we would be a bulwark against these things coming in, these mystical ideas and teachings, these false gospels. Protect us from those, Lord. Let us know the truth so well that we're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but we're founded upon Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. Help us to do that in Christ's name and power. Amen.